0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that reminds you, that, in fact, that award season is a year-round event. It's not just a few months. Sort of. Yeah. I'm Vanity Fair's <laughs> film critic, Richard Lawson, filling in for Deputy Editor Katie Rich, who is making up some big life changes that she can el- you know, elaborate on when she's back. <laughs> uh, but I'm also here with uh, Vanity Fair's senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan.
1: Hello.
2: Katie made me promise to tell all our listeners that she will be back.
0: She, she will promises. Yes. it's like at she the end credits, back. you know, like James Bond will return. I'll and, be back. Yeah, <laughs> she'll be back literally next week. So yeah, yeah <laughs> next week. So you know, award season really is year round because we we just had nominations come out this week, albeit for less watched things like the theater so the tony yeah, awards came, yeah, nominations yes, the are out. um and increasingly i feel like this is a kind of a star-studded sort of thing you used to have sort of theater actors siloed and then there were tv actors and then there were movie actors and now it's all sort of yeah. bleeding together um you know because we have some big names who got nominated kate blanchett's in there laura linney's in there um it's a it's a lot of people joanna have you gotten a chance to see anything broadway-ish this this season
2: uh well uh- coincidentally <laughs> the, the only thing i've seen that's nominated this year is natasha pierre but it's leading the nomination so yeah. you know uh i i chose wisely i guess when i was in town but natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 um i did get a chance to see though i had a i had a groban understudy so
0: oh well, i didn't get
2: the full groban uh, experience
0: but that's all right yeah um that show's been floating around for a while i saw it years ago um in some sort of tent that they had set up in Midtown to kind of look like a cabaret. Yeah. Um, So it's, I'm glad that it finally, you know, made its way to the big stage and has been so well received.
1: Which ones have you seen, Richard? I'm sure you've Um, seen a bunch, right?
0: Yeah, I've I've seen Dear Evan Hansen. I saw it off-Broadway and on. Mm -hmm. I am a Mm -hmm. sort of, outlier about that show that much loved show i, I sort of don't love it okay which, in fact don't <laughs> like it at all uh beautiful music Why did you
1: see it twice then because i to wanted to see the second I, time you're like yeah, was yeah, i right to hate it yes? yeah
0: okay. i think it, there's some great you know melodies and and the performances are good i just think the message of the show uh is sort of gross <laughs> um oh, okay but I, the one that i'm really excited that got a bunch of nominations including best actress best actor two featured actress nominations and best play is a doll's house part two mm. this really wild show that shouldn't work but does it literally is a sequel to Ibsen's a doll's house right nora comes back 15 years later and it sounds crazy and it is crazy and that's what makes it funny but it's also trenchant and smart and laurie metcalf is amazing i think that she could probably go all the way and
1: oscar winner chris cooper in Chris Cooper, well.
0: yep, yep. Recent Tony winner Jane Howdyshell is in there, so it's a good, it's a good uh, lineup. But I think you know we're, we're we're foolish if we don't talk about the kind of biggest, loudest thing in the room, which is Hello Dolly, Hello, with, Dolly. with Bette Midler. Bette, yeah. Joanne, are you a Bette Midler fan?
2: Yes, I'm a huge Bette Midler fan.
0: Yeah. Uh, Weren't you
2: teasing a potential feud? Was it between Bette Midler and Patty Lupone if they both get not one well, like if this, when they get both nominated?
0: This was before. No, I what 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 I was saying was that like there was this kind of contentious Sunset Boulevard derived feud between Patty Lupone oh. and Glenn Close. But then Glenn Close was not eligible, so this so this this pretend this, this war we've averted the war, <laughs> the crisis. Okay. So that's that's good. But I still think that Patti Lapone and Bette Midler kind of squaring off as in Best Actress in a Musical. That's a pretty big deal. I don't see there's any way that Bette Midler could lose this just because the show is this, like, phenomenon and this, like, you know, seismic event on Broadway. Yeah. yeah. And she's very much at the center of that. I mean, you know, when when they announce it, the, the, the nominations, they show the poster for the show and hers is Bette Midler, Hello Dolly, font equal size. I mean, right. it's just yes. she's <laughs> like, you know, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. like she's. She's got it. Although there is there's is kinda of whispers that um Danae Benton from Natasha and Pierre could kinda of sneak in if, if the votes between the kind of grand divas are split. So
1: Well it's funny. Uh, when I saw that it was Hello Dolly, my dad was once in a like a th- theater like a community theater version of the matchmaker that hello dolly is the musical version of right and he played cornelius vanderbilt and so i was kind of like not knowing too much about the hello dolly thing but i was just i was like oh you know my have two aunts in the city they love theater like i was like let's have dad come in we can all go and everyone's like, great, amazing. So yeah. I was like, great. We picked a date. I went to go buy the tickets. It was going to be like $1,400. Yeah. I was like, can we pick something else? Let's pick yeah. something else. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> so I dashed everyone's dreams. They all thought no. I had some like the, Vanity like, Fair in right. to get us right. eight tickets to Hello Dolly. Yeah, anyway. that.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that that in is hard to get. I got a nice surprise a couple of weeks ago, about two o'clock in the afternoon, the day of opening night of Hello Dolly, I got an email saying, we have a pair of tickets. Do you want it? And I, so I like nice. ran home. Who did you bring?
1: Who's your, who's uh, your go-to plus one? Well?
0: have yeah. a th- my first friend in new york who I, d- I worked in theater with and she still works in theater so nice. i was like I, she's taken That's me to well so done. many shows well played. over the years so i was like here we go so that was great and Bette midler was wonderful and you just feel it in the room like you know i kind of got this feeling when i saw sunset boulevard as well which actually got very few nominations if any is that people are kind of happy like the the event is kind of more being there than actually the show yeah like they're yeah when they applaud they're like so happy for themselves. What
1: happens when she comes on stage? Oh, it's
0: like insane. Standing I mean, or just... Yeah, the, the, the theater cr-
1: cr- crumbles and then right. they rebuild it.
0: <laughs> and yeah, you know, it's, yeah, so she she gets a big standing ovation then she gets a big standing ovation after her big kind of act one closing number. Oh, she really? Gets standing Multiple o- standing ovations? She basically got, yeah, I think she got another one she came out at act two. And then, of course, wow. at the end, and then uh, opening night, it was great, you know, two sort of chorus boys walked out with these, both holding these huge bouquets of white roses, and she's in this wow. all-white outfit. And they, you know, gave her one in each arm, and she pretended they were so heavy that she fell to the ground, and then she's lying there as the curtain dropped, and that was, like, how we said goodbye to Beth that night. Wow. It was great. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know she so. is 71 so it could have been actually well you. true yeah i mean <laughs> there, okay
0: there are a couple it's, moments in the show where she like sorry, will I lean mean. against the wall and be like panting and like <laughs> and you're like and it's like a bit but it's also like not a bit, like, maybe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah but she perseveres
2: i have a question for you guys if you're conditioned the same way i am now for better or for worse whenever i see nominations come out for any major awards i start like tallying up this is this is weird like start telling up like sort of the race of the various nominees to yeah. see like how we're doing diversity wise and since last year was such a big year for hamilton and it felt like oh well, you know like <laughs> No, no problem there. We know like all these great uh, performers of color are going to are going to win awards Mm -hmm. this this last year. Um, And then, you know, looking at this year, it doesn't feel quite like Tony's so white or anything like that. But, you know, it's definitely a a paler lineup this year without Hamilton on the roster.
0: Yeah, it for sure is. I mean, you have some deserving nominees like John Douglas Thompson for August Wilson's Jitney, Denae Benton and Natasha Pierre cory hawkins from six degrees of separation but it's just it's not it's it doesn't feel as exciting as last year you know when it felt much more diverse and i mean granted a lot of that diversity was coming from one show right but you know and i think that in general this this you know despite the hello dolly phenomenon and other you know other kind of highlights like Kate blanchett who was in a show that not a lot of people liked but You know, this year just is not sort of ordained with that kind of like cultural
1: moment just because there is no Hamilton
0: and probably won't be for many years. Right. I would guess.
1: Until all the people who saw Hamilton at age 12 and decided they uh, Mm
0: should make their own musical. That's exactly right. So until then, yeah, we at least have uh, these Tony Awards to look forward to. I always enjoy them, you know, and it's like the.
1: Maybe some people who saw In the Heights.
0: Sure. Yeah,
1: they're, that's, they're coming that's, along. That was like
0: ten years ago. Yeah, they're, they're they're almost close. there. They're like getting out of grad school. Maybe mm-hmm, you know they've mm-hmm. got something cooking. So, <laughs> so we'll see. And now we're going to talk to our Hollywood correspondent Rebecca Keegan about the narrowly averted WGA writer strike. So, Rebecca, what what's happened?
3: Well, there won't be a strike. I feel like the the town is very relieved. It had reached the point where literally every business I walked into, even the little place that makes my salads, was asking, are we going to have a strike? What odds do you put the strike at? (laughs) So the guild reached uh, an 11th hour deal, actually more like a 13th hour deal, because it came after their midnight deadline. It was interesting. I talked to one of the guild negotiators who was in the room about just how close they came and and it appears that it was really close there was definitely a feeling including among a lot of people on the writers guild's team that they wanted to strike and they were willing to strike
1: do you think that that brinksmanship helped them get more than they would have otherwise if people hadn't believed they were serious about going pencils
3: down I do, and I think the fact that they they held that strike authorization vote and they got 96% of their members voting yes with a really, I think, historically high turnout. So that gave them a lot of ammunition when they're sitting across the table from the AMPTP the group that represents the studios and they said look we're not we're clearly not bluffing we're ready to do this. And so they were able to get some big concessions things like their health plan one issue that was important to a lot of guild members was this idea where when you write for a TV show that has fewer episodes you you should get paid for the time that you spend on that not paid for the number of episodes you generate.
1: Right. And they changed, they, 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 so they said they made a new thing, where it's two and a half weeks per episode, right? If you, if you spend more time than that on one episode, then they have to pay you more? Is that how they solved that?
3: Right. Because apparently one thing that certain shows were doing was that even if you were done writing, they were literally telling people you can't go get any other work. You just mm. have to sort of hold in place. And so that meant people had really couldn't even go out and generate income for themselves they were held by these sort of strange deals so this created a mechanism whereby if the production companies are going to do that they're going to pay for it
1: but also presumably one of these kind of premium episodes nowadays is it takes a lot longer to write than like I dream of genie half hour back in the day,
3: right? <laughs> that's, that's true. I never thought about what the writer's room for I Dream of Genie must have been yeah. like. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like they weren't, you know, they weren't aspiring to like better call Saul levels of Right. Of writing, probably. That's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and even for a sh- I mean, for sh- something like Game of Thrones or, you know, prestige stuff that doesn't have commercials, we're not talking about 42 minutes. We're talking about an hour, you know, sometimes yes. over. And like that extra 20 minutes, like that's, that's, you're getting to movie length at that point, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I actually um, spoke with a friend and her husband writes on an HBO show and he was talking exactly about that. He's like, yeah, it's great money for three months, but it's not. If you've stretched out across a year when I'm working on it, you know, it's it's actually not as much money as you think it right. is. So hopefully this alleviates some of that.
1: Well, Rebecca, the one thing that they that they didn't get and no one's ever getting is broadcast money. Right. Like that ship has sailed. There's the, the business model doesn't exist anymore. And even if we're all obsessed with TV, no one's making the kind of money that they did when broadcast shows would be, you know, syndicated forever. And, you know, having a broadcast license was a license to print money, basically.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. One of the writers who I spoke with yesterday um, is a showrunner on a show that's on, on cable. And this person was disappointed that, that no progress was made to sort of bring them closer, at least, to what people who work on broadcast shows earn. I, I do think that at some point the writers felt like we're, we're not going to get this. Let's, let's get the health plan concessions. Let, let's get these other things because we're not making progress on this.
0: Right. Do you think that that is like a function of just kind of like tradition like, well, no, I mean you know broadcast TV pays more, cable pays you know pays less or or is there really an economic thing? I mean, are the networks making that much more money than uh, off of television shows than than cable is? I mean, it can't that can't seem to be true right now these days, but maybe it is.
3: No, it's a good question and I don't actually fully know the economics of it, but I mean, there's no question that people who work on network shows make, Heck of a lot more money, the hmm. actors and the writers, everybody. It's well, I, hard I, I for mean-
1: me. I think it's got to be those are deals that were made back when there were three networks. Right. And, you know, the ratings were humongous for everything. And there was no not many places to put your ad. So it was like ridiculously lucrative. It was like, sure, OK, you can have that. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure that the that the management, you know, the producers are just saying the one thing we can never, ever do is give anyone as much money as they we gave them back when we were making money hand over <laughs> fist on broadcast without barely trying.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, one of the things that's different now is how much less ratings mean in general. I mean, for HBO, it's not about ratings, it's about subscriptions. Same for Netflix, same for Hulu, you know, all of these uh, different ways that we watch TV now. And in a way, I think it's, it's hard to know your own value as a creative person working in Hollywood when you can't sort of go in and say, well, look, here's my ratings relative to that show's ratings. It it in some ways it kind of disadvantages um the the person on the creative side from a bargaining standpoint.
1: Right. At least we still don't know how many people watch Netflix shows.
3: People who make Netflix shows don't even know how many people watch right. their shows. I mean that to right. me is so amazing that you could have these like high-powered showrunners working for you, and you don't even tell them what their audience is. But
1: that's the holy kind of grail of, of reporting, Rebecca. And you were going to break that story next week, right, on VF.com, I'm, VF Hollywood?
3: I'm on it. It's just, it's <laughs> you know, it's like one or two phone calls yeah, away. Yeah,
1: great, great, It's great, your
0: perfect. Pentagon you. Papers. I can't yeah. Yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. the, the, the Netflix ratings. So um, before we let you go, I'm just kind of curious, like now that the, the strike is averted, like has the mood lifted in town? Are people sort of dancing down the street? I mean, you know, they say that like um, a good compromise is when no when both sides kind of feel like they lost is uh, so are people like who seems happiest or is anyone happy
3: well yeah there's definitely relief in town um the writers i think think they got a a better deal um than the producers the producers are very quiet they and they have been that's that's sort of their style they have nothing to be gained by either doing a victory lap or by sort of slumping their shoulders they also face Another set of negotiations starting later this month with the Screen Actors Guild. So these deals all come in in, in a row. First the Directors Guild, then the Writers, then the Actors. Um, so to a certain extent, people are sort of bracing themselves for the next round of, of contract talks.
0: Do we think that SAG is going to be as contentious, or is that an easier deal to kind of smooth through?
3: They usually aren't. I mean, the writers are usually the toughest negotiators among the guilds, and I think one issue will be whether SAG sort of benefits from some of the gains that the the writers were able to get.
1: They usually basic. They call it pattern bargaining, right? Where they usually basically ask for whatever else the the previous union got.
3: Right, and in in the case of the the writers guild. There are some things that are super specific to the way writers work that obviously don't right. apply to SAG. But one interesting thing is, I mean, if you're the Directors Guild is the guild with sort of um, I don't know the biggest egos in town, and they it's interesting that the writers were able to get some things that the directors weren't. Normally the directors go first, and you sort of take what they got. Kind of interesting that the writers essentially. I mean, I there are a lot of writers that I've spoken to who sort of roll their eyes at the direct what the Directors Guild was able to get.
0: <laughs> well i mean that's kind of like a good representation i mean the actors will take what they can get the writers right. feel like they're not being respected enough and right. the directors right. are you know yeah. the, and
3: well, the directors are egomaniacs right. it's pretty much it's it, a pretty good facsimile of how people it, actually <laughs> function in the business it
0: all tracks well i'm glad that crisis has been averted for now and um, look we should yeah. all
1: celebrate a week when writers actually got a little bit of respect yeah that's a rare yeah. it, <laughs> a it's, rare it's, moment it's true yeah
0: all right. Well, thanks for talking about about this with us, Rebecca, and um, you know, we'll circle back when it's time for the actress to negotiate. Okay, sounds All good. Right, thanks, thanks Rebecca, guys. Bye.
3: Bye-bye.
0: So, switching gears from the joys of Broadway theater to the horrors of cinema.
1: <laughs> we ju- <laughs> we just
0: there are, a really interesting trailer came out this week for a movie called It Comes at Night. Which is the second feature from Trey Edward Schultz, who had the lauded Kreisha, um this really tiny indie that sort of that won South by Southwest and, you know, put him on the map, so to speak, uh, that came out two years ago. And now this is, you know, there are famous people, Joel Edgerton's in this one, Riley Keogh. So, you know, bigger kind of names, presumably a bigger budget. And it's this looks, what looks to be a really elegant horror film. You guys have seen the trailer, yeah?
1: Yeah. It felt like a little bit of a mix of like Cabin in the Woods meets Animal Kingdom, the the movie. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so like kind of genre-y and suspenseful, but definitely has that quality. And, you know, A24, even that logo is starting to signal to us like there's uh, there's a little more quality here than you might otherwise expect. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because Kreisha, which we should give a shout out to our very own Krista Smith, who was on the jury that picked Kreisha to win South by Southwest 2015. And she's the one who was like, you have to see Kreisha. So I did. And, and um yeah, I, I love Kreisha, If You guys haven't seen it, um, like family Thanksgiving from hell, basically. And 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 Trader Schultz shot it with like a lot of his own family in it
0: it's in the in the actual low, house, I believe. Too. Yeah, yeah,
2: super low budget, and so but it's sort of shot like a horror film. So like it when is, yeah. when you see that the next thing he's doing is a horror film, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and it's also you know this is I believe the clash of two families is is the like make up the plot of this. So it really feels like he's going to take what he did in Crescia and just like add a few more starry people to it, higher production value and really sort of dig back into those same themes, which I'm excited about because like Crescia was obviously a very personal film for him. And so you always, you always wonder if someone who comes out the gate with so much promise with a film like that, that is so tied to their own experience, um, if they can expand that vision wide, if they can take that to a larger, larger degree. But, um, the film, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the film also premiered at this new horror festival, the Overlook Overlook Film Festival, which is hosted the same hotel from The Shining, right? right um, in
1: Oregon, yeah.
2: And and it got uh, great reviews, great yeah. reviews out of yeah. that festival. So you know, it's not just a creepy trailer that made my sister actually physically cover her hands or her face with her hands when we saw it in the theaters this weekend but you know it's got it's got some good buzz on it.
0: So yeah, I mean the question is kind of for our purposes. It, like if you look at recent things that have happened like it follows coming out getting these great art house reviews. The Witch certainly, you know, that was kind of almost almost in the Oscar conversation last year. And now you have Get Out, you know, the people saying that could get a screenplay nomination. Like is horror kind of becoming a prestige genre? I mean, like, or is there, because I don't know, it feels like it's been a long time, you know, interesting with, with Jonathan Demi dying recently, people are kind of reconsidering Silence of the Lambs. That's a horror movie that won the yes. big five at the Oscars. It's been yeah. a long time since that's happened. I mean, maybe we're due for that. Does it feel
1: like that to you guys? I mean, I definitely think in TV, you're seeing genres slide into the Emmy conversation more and more, kind right. of following along behind Game of Thrones. Yeah. I wonder if a horror movie, I, I I think, I wonder if a jump scare horror movie can ever quite make that leap. I think there are disturbing, you know, kind of quasi-arty suspense movies that can right. definitely Which do Silence that. Which Silence of the Lambs is more than, yeah. It's like yeah. a
2: thrill, it's more thriller than horror, yeah. almost, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: but I don't know. I mean, Joanna, what do you think?
2: know, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think it comes at night is going to necessarily be in the conversation. I think there's been some talk of Get Out maybe getting like a screenwriting award or yeah. nomination or something like that. But I... I think it is certainly true that with stuff like It Follows and The Babadook and all these other things, we're seeing horror not only as like a training ground for promising new directors, but also just a genre we need to take more seriously in general, I think. But yeah, I, I don't see like a, a straightforward horror movie being a major award season contender. Not yet. Maybe I'll I'll leave my words.
1: I think you're right about it being a testing ground because the technical expertise to do them uh, I mean you can you can do a shitty horror movie that sort of functions and scares people but like to do a really good one with all the timing stuff and the kind of like cutaway um, imagery you know it's always yeah. it's always about make, making you worry about what you're gonna see rather than what you actually see you know anytime right. you look at some fake blood you're like alright it's fake blood yeah. so uh, it's all about that building up the the intensity and then like blowing it up all through basically visual sleight of hand
0: right exactly and, and they can be done Sort of on the cheap because Horror kind of unlike almost Any other genre doesn't require Like big name talent to do really well You know like you can have a bunch of no names And actually in some ways that works better Because if you see you know some famous Person walk on screen you're like well they're not gonna die Right. But if it's a unless, bunch of unknowns, Unless it's Scream. Right, unless it's Scream. Yeah. yeah, right. You have no idea, you know. So, you know, and and look at David Robert Binchel, who, who who made It Follows, a really beautifully made and t- terrifying, inventive movie. And his next movie, Under the Silver Lake, is, a you know, kind of a thriller, a noir thriller in Los Angeles with Andrew Garfield and Riley Keough and Zoja Mammoth. Like, it has big names. And so this it follows was kind of his calling card yeah and now he's in you know directing movies that are rumored to be at can and you know stuff like that so it is interesting that this to this really top tier talent is getting their start in an accessible cheapish you know yeah well and it's probably genre. pulling
1: the language of prestige film toward it you know right. so that yeah. there's kind of like tingly creepy visuals and stuff right. starts to be a normal language for like oscar movies right exactly you know? yeah i'm just
0: glad that we're kind of out of the the, that really, the, I think the the period that pulled me out of watching horror movies, like the kind of well, saw like miserable, just like mm, gory, torture like, porn, you know, torture yeah. porn. And then it was yeah. all the kind of the conjuring, all these kind of jump scare things. And like now it feels like we're getting a little more to a place of more like elegance, you know, like when a yeah. movie like The Others, when The Cold Kidman could be made again or something, you know,
1: Yeah,
2: oh, I love um, that movie. The other thing I want to say is, of course, the cultural thing that has gotten us talking about the Oscars over the past few months has been FX's feud, which is about a horror movie that had a presence at the Oscars, you know. So, you know, I don't think we'll ever see whatever happened to Baby Jane's like again, necessarily. But, you know, these, these I guess these things come in waves. And, yeah, when we're in the in the midst of the torture porn era. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to see any, unless Saw got some sort of technical nomination that I'm not aware of, or The Hills Have Eyes or something like that. But uh, but yeah, something about now about like A24 and other, other studios putting out these really psychological and often very feminist, like a girl Walk home, walks home alone at night. That was another one that I was just yeah. like really loved. So uh, it's a good, it's a good time for her lovers.
0: Yeah. I think that just to elevate it like to, you know as high as we want it to go like we need somebody like you know like kubrick went and made the shining and although that movie was not that well received in its time it's of course become a kind of classic like we need someone like paul thomas anderson to like just be like you know what i'm making a horror movie although you could argue there will be blood as a horror movie but um (laughs) but you know like it would be really exciting if so i guess sofia coppola i mean we'll see what what um the beguiled Beguiled is like um i'll I'll see it in a couple weeks i mean ex machina
1: was came pretty close to being you know an oscar movie that's Uh, true yeah yeah.
0: So and I actually won, you know,
1: of um, special effects. Qu- yeah, yeah. Somebody needs to just do a flat out hag exploitation. Sorry, if I can kind I of use that term. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah as a, as, as, a, as a
0: you know hag adjacent i i can, I can improve <laughs>
2: that. With, with uh B- bett maybe <laughs> yeah there yeah, you go sure. that's broadway's that's darling bett yeah. uh-huh. There's
0: there's got to be a role in there for melissa leo or somebody you know uh-huh. she likes to kind of go that route sometimes <laughs> yeah get the big little lies cast together right. well if there's any like auteur director listening yeah.
1: uh, yes please
0: so we're just talked about horror now we're going to talk about sci-fi fantasy joanna how would you categorize guardians of the galaxy it's not really science fiction
2: it's got trappings of the sci-fi genre. It has, you know, it's comic book. I guess is the catch-all phrase we could use.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. So, have you seen Volume Two?
2: I have. Yes.
0: What are your thoughts? Because I, I I put a review up last week, and I think I was pretty much in agreement with people. But what w- what did you think?
2: I didn't like it as much as the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, not nearly. Just because I think the a lot of the charm of the first one was. The surprise of seeing something, you know, um, I won't call it edgy or anything like that, but just sort of seeing that come out of Marvel uh, in the first place. So a lot of the surprise of, of that Guardians of the Galaxy m- comprises charm. This time it feels almost a little too self-reverential, if that makes sense. Um, sure. Or, yeah, just like in love with itself. That being said... Something that I have been strongly against in general is the use of CGI on faces. Particularly, I was really, really against what they did with Rogue One. Yeah. But for young Kurt Russell in this movie, I, you know, they got me.
0: It it eerily worked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I feel like we are climbing out of the Uncanny Valley now because that, that whole thing, you know, I usually sort of react with disgust to those things. And I was like, Oh my, I was like shocked. I don't know if like, I don't know my eyesight was poor that day or something like that, because I I actually saw it with Rebecca Keegan. And when we walked out, Rebecca was like, I thought that was a little Uncanny Valley. I was like, I thought we were clear out of the Uncanny Valley with that Kurt Russell face. And that, and that kind of creeps me out because you know, the, of course the ramifications of that are like, do we even need actors anymore if we can convincingly simulate their faces? So, um, that's 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 my long view of guardians but the what did, what did you think richard I,
0: I i liked it i thought it was fun i i kind of didn't remember the first one at all when i went into i guess maybe i sh- i'm admitting that i didn't do my homework and i should have prepared but you know uh, so i kind of forgot the dynamics between the characters and i remembered the tree and you know the groot you know so the tree, the tree groot, <laughs> yeah um you know and i so i, I like yeah yeah and and this one's like baby Groot and he's cute i mean maybe they overuse him a little too much but I liked it and I thought it was strangely emotional and, and and it was fun. I thought some of the action sequences were good. But the bigger question it had me thinking is sort of something you mentioned, Joanna, about being self-referential. It's like with the Marvel kind of world now so big that it becomes becomes unwieldy almost. It's like, when does all of this kind of self-reference and like tying things together just become impossible to kind of keep up in the air? I, I, and and I, part of Guardians... The first one that I remember liking was that it was separate of this, you know, other stuff, the Avengers stuff. And now, of course, they're they're, they're kind of trying to bring it closer to, because uh, they're gonna, all going to be in Infinity War, all the Guardians people. So it just, I don't know, it just makes me worried. But I guess I've been having the same worry about this whole thing for years now, and it hasn't come to bear. Like, these movies are still huge. And right.
2: I think we do have to take them sort of case by case. I I, I believe this movie is going to make probably all of the money (laughs) which is (laughs) which is going to be the second movie from disney this year to make all of the money after beauty and the beast i don't know that it has anything new other than kurt russell's young face again to to show us and that's okay i mean maybe it doesn't have to i'm much more excited for marvel's fall offering which is um Thor Ragnarok from Taika Waititi like I think that is going to be sort of a new creative direction for them but as you say it's all going to come back to the massive crossover of um of Infinity War I also saw when I was down in LA you know Rebecca and I did this tour of Marvel Studios and we saw a lot of upcoming footage and uh the Black Panther footage is amazing so that that could be really hugely exciting as well so with guardians i mean maybe it's maybe it's kind of jaded of me to be like yeah i've already seen this tree and this raccoon (laughs) like show me something i haven't seen guardians uh yeah and i don't know it has five post-credit scenes like there's, there's there's yeah
0: it's a lot well I guess you know one you know for awards purposes maybe Kurt Russell's young face gets it an Oscar nomination for special effects I don't know maybe there are people in that world who are, are put off by the the, the the sort of implications of of how effective that face technology is but we'll see but I like think you said it's gonna make all the money it doesn't need to worry about awards it doesn't honestly need to worry about what we think of it yeah <laughs>
2: That's how I felt seeing Beauty and the Beast. I was like, my opinion of this doesn't matter at all. Like, it's beyond my opinion mattering, because this is just gonna go ahead and get all the money. Sometimes
0: we just have to admit that some things are bigger than us, Joanna.
2: (laughs) Occasionally. Yeah.
0: So now we're going to go back to Rebecca Keegan, who sat down in LA and had a conversation with Misha Green, who is the uh, creator and showrunner of WGN's Underground, the slavery set drama that's gotten a great bunch of great reviews and is ending its second season uh, next week.
3: Hi, I'm Rebecca Keegan, and I am here with Misha Green, one of the co-creators of the show Underground. Thanks for being here, Misha. Thank you for having me. For listeners who are not familiar with your show, I will just say that if you, like me, are one of those people who hears about every new superhero movie and wonders, why don't they just make a Harriet Tubman biopic? It exists. Yes. It's this show. Um, Take me back to when you first got the idea for the show.
4: Um, Literally, it was me and my sister sitting around and she was like, you know, what would be a good idea for a show? The Underground Railroad. And I was like, you know, what would be a great title? Underground. And I was like, I never come up with good titles. I was like, really excited about that. And then um, I had met Joe Pekaski my co-creator on Heroes. And we I, I just sat down with him. I was like, we should do a show about this. And we started researching. And the more we started researching, the more we were like, how has no one done a show about this yet. Every story we were reading was just amazing. And again, we go and watch superheroes, you know, and Captain America and all that stuff. And we're like, here's American superheroes. We haven't told their story yet. So we got excited about that.
3: You were talking about the... Historical research that you did Mm -hmm. initially. Can you tell me a little bit about what form that took, how you learned
4: about the era? Any and all research we could do. What really I think cracked it open for both Joe and I was when we started listening to the slave narratives at the Library of Congress. And it was actually former enslaved people who were telling their stories with their own words. Wow, so their own voices. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when we were like, oh, here's the world. Here's, you know, you can read a lot of stuff and it's about, it's a modern day look back back and it's very, you know, uh, again what we've seen of this time period and we just really wanted to get in and kind of give people who were enslaved this voice with, that we feel like they hadn't had and I think that's because you know we've seen this mostly in features and that's a finite amount of time whereas we have a long form to really explore all of these characters and it was just that's really where it started for us where we're like, oh, now we're hearing them speak about their lives. And it's not always, you know, whipping and whipping posts. There were so much more details and intricacies happening within them.
3: What was it like to be shooting on locations where these very events took place? I mean, your first season, you said, was in Baton Rouge?
4: Yes, we were in Baton Rouge the first season. And to step onto those plantations, just it's just... There's a weight that immediately, like when everybody, we kind of took um, the cast on a little tour of all of our sets. And when we got off those buses, immediately everybody felt it. And it just added an extra thing to the show, I think, where we were all like, "Okay, we got to do the ancestors proud. We're here. Um, And it's also very eerie. I think, you know, Adina Porter, who played Pearlie Mae in the first season, we were sitting around on set one day and she's just staring at this gigantic tree and, and she goes, I wonder how many people were hung from that tree. And just that, you're like, oh my God, like, ugh. How did you take the
3: kind of framework and the ideas from making a superhero show and apply them to these very real people, real characters?
4: You know, it wasn't very hard. The story of the Underground Railroad is a thriller. Mm. These are people who are basically in a heist movie and it's the most precious cargo ever your life Mm. you're fighting for your freedom so i think once we really got in there too there was all these gems that we couldn't even made up for instance what we used for cato in the first season when he um there was an enslaved person who went around and kicked out all the buckets Mm. on the plantation and then set the fields on fire so they couldn't and then they couldn't bring water to the fields i'm like was like, that's episode number four, didn't Mm -hmm. even have to come up with that. And I think that's what's so exciting too. And so, you know, it it makes you more feel the drive to tell these stories more because I'm like, how do people not know this, that such resilience is in our American DNA, and we haven't explored that yet. The
3: Civil War era became unexpectedly topical this week, I think, Mm when um, President Trump gave some a little bit bewildering interviews right. about it. I mean,
4: it. is any of his interviews bewildering now?
3: Even even by his standard, mm-hmm. I think these have 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 some people's heads scratching. I'm just going to
4: re- read you.
3: He said, people said, people don't ask that question, but why was there a civil war? Why could that one not have been worked out? And when I read that, I, I had intended to ask you, how much can you assume your audience knows about this era of history?
4: I think a little more than the president. <laughs> you think
3: so? Well, how yeah. Well, first of all, you know, what did you make of those comments?
4: You know, I think uh, I'm not surprised again by this comments. I think that he's been very consistent in his, you know, what? That question of your everything you read of his, you go, what? Um, I think what's so interesting about the show and what's so great about the show is the people who, you know, are engaging in the history, who want to know more, who are researching more. A lot of the um, fans on Twitter, we see them passing back and forth history and the information and Mm -hmm. links to it. And that, to me, is so exciting because, you know, in a situation where we have a president making statements like that, I'm like, oh, we do have to make sure that everybody is being educated on our history so we don't repeat it again.
3: One of the ways where the show, uh, it seems you don't feel like you have to be totally faithful to history is in your use of contemporary music, yeah, And that's a decision you made early on to do
4: that. How come? You know, we wrote from the very first script, we wrote in Kanye's black skinhead, which we opened the first season with um, and followed it up with Beyonce's freedom this mm-hmm. season, which was so fun. But we, we knew we wanted to kind of, music has this ability to bridge time. Like you can hear a song from the 1920s and still be like, oh, that's it. That's the feeling I have right now. So we just wanted to take present day and kind of bridge time a little bit with the past and say, this isn't, we're not so different. We're not so far off. Don't look at this as, you know, something distant from us. Let's fill it. Let's be present in it. And I think the music and, you know, John Legend has been so fantastic in helping us curate that feeling and give vibrancy to to a thing that I think a little, sometimes people were afraid was going to be historical filling and stale.
3: Mm-hmm. Was it hard to get the rights to any of the music that you want to use? Oh,
4: it's it's really hard. It's mm-hmm. so terrible. I think what I've learned is that so many songwriters are on all these songs and you have to like check in with every single one of them. But um, our music team, Jonathan Christensen's our music supervisor and he's kind of a dog with a bone who will go out there, will be like we love this song and he will hunt it down and get it and talk to everyone and be like, you have to be a part of this show. And then when he he misses the mark just a little bit, John will swoop in and he'll be like, listen, I need I need this favor. So it's been great because we also don't have a huge music budget. So it's also been fun to, to kind of discover newer talents mm. and bring them in and be like, that's the feel and that's it. And have people again be like, we want to know who sang this song. You have one episode
3: in this second season that's really different in form. its I understand you referred to it among yourselves as the Harriet Tubman TED Talk Mm -hmm. episode. Can you tell me a little bit about the idea behind it and how you structured it?
4: Well, this season we knew we wanted to bring in um, more of the historical characters. We knew that the end of the first season was Rosalie meeting up with Harriet. And, you know, it's this daunting task when you think about it. Because I was like, oh, there has to be plenty of material on Harriet to... To see where we can center ours, mm-hmm. there's not. And so it became this thing of like, how do we tell this story of this superhero, this real life superhero, and how do we make her accessible so that we understand we can all be Harriet Tubman's? And I think from the start, as we were going through it, um, I saw a Maya Angelou talk and it's a speech she gave. I uh, forget where she gave it, but it was on YouTube. I watched it, it was like, 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, she took us to all the places. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, that's, I was like, this was amazing. How has no one seen more of this, this one talk in which she did all these things in it. And you're like, at the end of it, you're like almost in tears. And um, then at the same time, Joe and I were researching and we found that Harriet was actually starting to give talks to abolitionists at the time in 1950, um, Hmm. in 1858. And um, so we were like, oh my God, let's do a TED talk let's do a whole episode where she just talks about her life to this group of abolitionists. And that's kind of where the seed of it started. And you know, you say things, you're like, we're going to do this. And then it comes down to two weeks before the end of shooting. And we actually have to do it. And we're like, Oh, we haven't wrote this script yet. And Aisha (laughs) hasn't memorized 45 pages. And so we all kind of like, got on it because you can't you can't not get on it when it's Harriet Tubman
3: well how crazy for your actress I mean Mm -hmm. it's page after page of dialogue that she must have had to absorb in a very short period of time
4: yeah she had a week and a half wow yeah and we shot it in three days and it was literally that thing where we were like so we wrote it we wrote it in three days she had a week and a half and then the three-day shoot and in all of it we were kind of like well, we have no choices now. It's either got to work or it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And then we were there shooting on that day. And I remember she walked up to that stage and did, cause we did each act, the whole act all the way through. And she did the whole act all the way through. And I turned to Joe and I turned to Anthony Hemingway, our director, producer. And I said, Oh, we're good. And every, we all, every, it was like you could see it kind of flood through the entire crew where everybody was like, oh, wow, we're going to pull this off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic. And it was led by Aisha. Again, it it was extraordinary to watch.
3: One of the things that you do in the show that I really enjoy is when you kind of play with our expectations of what people are capable of or just our sort of assumptions we make about people. One thing I'm thinking of is the sewing circle. Mm -hmm where I assume I'm going to see a prim group of 19th century women, and it turns out to be sort of a resistance planning group. And it made me wonder, do you ever feel like people are making assumptions about you being in this industry, being a woman, being African American, being very young to be a showrunner? You're 32, is that right? Yes. That's really young to have (laughs) as much responsibility. Do you ever feel when you walk in a room like, you're sort of having to overcome anyone's assumptions.
4: You know, I, I I think that that's definitely true. I think people have their assumptions, but I don't buy into their assumptions. So it's kind of, you know, the other day I was just in a pitch and I walked up and the person I was introduced to was like, oh my God, you write like a man. <laughs> what does that mean? And no, I, and I went and I, that's exactly what I was like. What does that mean? Yeah. And then he was like, oh, uh, uh, and like everybody in the room was like, oh no, uh uh-oh, this is already going horrible. And I was just like, well, what does that mean? And he was like, well, you know, just that you've you've got an aggressive, you know. And I was like, women can be aggressive too. In fact, (laughs) I've heard they're some of the most aggressive people to hear men talk about us, Right? you know. So I think that I just, I find it all funny, to be honest. I'm always like... You can assume, you know, it's no secret. I've said this before. People have mistaken me for a PA on the set, on my own set. And I'm just like, what are you going to do? We're
3: talking less than 12 hours after the Writers Guild has just put the finishing touches on a new contract. A strike has been averted to the relief of a lot of people. Yes. Was was anything that you were working on? Would that have been affected if there was going to be
4: a strike? No, we have finished writing the season a while ago, and we haven't started season three. So nothing was going to be affected by a strike. Did you? The last strike
3: happened in 2007. Mm-hmm. What was going on in your life? in 2007.
4: That's right when I had moved to Hollywood to start being a writer in Hollywood. And I got here and I was like, Oh, we're not doing this right now. That's not what we're doing. So it was a little weird. But then again, at the same time, it allowed me to take a moment to step back. I think when people first get to this town, it's like that pressure to go, 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 you got to get somewhere. And I was like, there's nowhere for me to go Mm -hmm. right now. So how'd you make a
3: living? What did you do?
4: I was working um, at Talazai, which is a Thai restaurant on Sunset. Oh, yeah, on Sunset. Yeah, and I actually worked there through selling my first script because you sell your first script and you're like, I sold a script. Mm. And then you're like, oh, but it's still like, got to wait for the money. You got to do all this stuff that they don't tell you you have to do. Right. Yeah, so I was taking, I don't drive, so I was taking the bus every day to Talazai.
3: That's quite a trajectory in 10 years. Now, I understand you have five seasons of Underground sort of mentally mapped out. Is that yes. correct? Yes.
4: So, would you take your characters through the Civil War? Yes, I think a thing that's little known that I didn't even know when I first started this is the underground became um, a natural spy network for the North during the Civil War. Right. So there's a whole spy tell to be told and interesting stuff going on with Harriet and being the first woman to kind of um, do a raid in any war in American history. It's all of that stuff is so exciting. And the Civil War, I think, is it's ready for a new treatment in a long form that can give the time and space to it, you know, to help people like the president figure out what why we were having the Civil War
3: for instance for instance, someone who could just tune a in little, yeah in case the president or anyone wants to tune in the season finale of underground airs May 8th on WGN America yes thank you so
4: much Misha thank you
0: well that about does it for this week's episode of little gold men as ever we would you know implore you to um, go on to iTunes and rate and review us it helps more people find us and it helps us you know it's always good to get feedback. You can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men individually. I'm at Rylaws. Joanna?
2: I'm at Joe this.
0: Katie Rich is at Katie Rich. Mike, who had to run, is at Mike underscore Hogan. This week's episode was produced and edited by Jordan Bell. And thanks, as always, to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the sunniest outlook on today's political climate goes to Joanna Robinson.
2: It's good time for her lovers.